0: Welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while living with the unique stressors of this very strange yet potent time. My name is Brett, and I'll be your host on this journey as we explore a wide variety of different practices, worldviews, and ideas which are aimed to help us stay upright and forward-moving in our lives today's episode, we're going to be sitting down with a shiatsu practitioner, clean language facilitator, and author, Nick Pohl. In this conversation, we talk about the amazing conversational methodology of clean language, which is the focus of Nick's book, Words That Touch. This is a simple and highly effective practice which helps facilitate mind-body communication in a therapeutic context. This conversation covers a lot of ground, starting with a guided meditation to take us beyond the theory and into a direct experience of clean language. We then use that as a foundation to investigate the embodied nature of language, the essence of words, the cognitive function of metaphors, and ultimately how we can use all of this to work with trauma. If this conversation resonates with you, please consider checking out Nick's book, Words That Touch, wherever you find your books. He also has an online training for body workers starting up in October, which I'll personally be attending. So mark that on your calendar if it lines up with your life situation. His website is nickpole.com. He has links to all of those things plus more. Uh, I really recommend uh, plugging into this. It's really incredible and it's been a deeply meaningful part of my new year so if you want to support this show head on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism consider just signing up it really is a glorified tip jar at this point but every little bit helps if you don't have the financial compensation that is totally okay just uh you can subscribe on youtube like us on facebook follow us on instagram any and all interaction is a huge boon to the platform and lets me know that you're out there. I see that you're out there. I see people are listening, but uh, anything you could offer in terms of a hello, I would love it. I'd love to connect with you. I really enjoy uh, talking with anybody who's a listener of the show. It's been a real treat. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Clean language. It's amazing. I'm excited to bring this conversation to you. So without further ado, please sit back drink some tea, do some stretches, and most importantly, open your heart for Nick Pohl. All right, so Nick, hello, we are now live. Uh, As always, I just want to start this episode by saying thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I know we're in different time zones pretty dramatically, so how are you doing today?
1: I'm I'm very um, glad to be talking to you, Brett, because from what I've heard of your podcast, A, you ask really good questions, and B, you're doing something pretty brave, which is being multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, you're talking to all kinds of people from all kinds of disciplines, and I think we really have to be get better at doing that in the world that we're in at the moment, because yeah. so much of our troubles come from people being stuck in their little individual disciplines. We need to learn to listen to each other, which I guess is one thing that clean language helps us to do.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that recognition. Uh, you know, it might not be the best marketing choice just because there's so many different fans of so many different things. And, uh, but yeah, I think as you're saying, it's so important in these times to bring everyone under the same roof and everybody has a unique piece to the, the puzzle. So yeah, thank you for that recognition. Um, you know, I want to start by just kind of acknowledging uh, how I came across your work. Um, and you know what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, so your book, which I have right here, uh, Words That Touch, this might be backwards in the camera, but um, I had a somatic therapist friend of mine who originally got me into body work and trauma therapy. Uh, he recommended this back in the fall, and I don't question whenever he suggests something to me, I just get it, because I trust him. And immediately within the first couple of pages, uh, something within me clicked, and it really, really resonated. Um, so I think this is a brilliant uh, system that you're helping to share. And the fact that you're bringing it into uh, the bodywork world, I think is just pretty revolutionary. And I think when people touch base with this kind of material, I am very confident they're going to have that same spark of inspiration, because it it is just mind blowing stuff. <laughs> so I want to ask, uh, how did you come to clean language and what is clean language?
1: Uh, which you want to ask first. <laughs>
0: um, well, I guess, yeah, what it is. And then, you know, I, I still would love to hear, you know, your first yeah. experience when you had that bolt of inspiration well, I think, too.
1: Thanks. I think what it is, um, is a good question. One I ask myself all the time. <laughs> uh, or rather, what makes it work? Because we were talking before and you were saying that when you actually tried to use some of the stuff from the book, it actually didn't work. It was kind of clunky and that's absolutely normal. That's, you know, you, you need some practice. You need to work a bit, you know, with somebody, with a trainer and so on. There's various aspects to it. So what makes it work is one question, but essentially the core of clean language is in that kind of weird word clean which can be quite irritating to people who've trained in other forms of therapeutic dialogue. Well, what's so clean about clean language? Does that mean my stuff isn't clean? Um, what clean means is that the the language we use is very, very carefully structured so that I, as the practitioner, as the facilitator, can't introduce my own stuff. I it's very hard for me to influence what's going on for the client, for the person on the receiving end of this beautiful stuff called clean language. And what difference does that make? The, the difference that it makes is it creates a, a very clean space. It respects the client's boundaries in a way. And then if I'm on the receiving end of these questions, I suddenly get a sense that somebody's really listening to me in a way that people don't usually listen in a normal conversation or even in a lot of therapeutic kind of conversation. Um, So that's the essence of what clean is. And I was thinking maybe a good way to start would be just to give you a a taste of it uh, rather than go on talking about it and see what happens. How would that be? That, yeah. so th- this, is, this is perfectly safe <laughs> I hope um, so, and it's a th- uh, something that I learned from a colleague of mine called Tamsin Hartley who has a wonderful um, clean training and, and approach called The Listening Space she's based in the north of England and it's uh, just a simple kind of meditation on the breath but instead of doing what we usually do with those kind of meditations which is giving instructions and, um guiding attention to certain things and um, it's just using the clean questions to see what happens okay um so I'll we'll, we'll both just settle for a minute and breathe and so on and I'll ask these questions and uh, if you're listening to the podcast of course if you're driving or something please don't get too much into it <laughs> but um, if you're sitting in a good spot and you want to see what happens then I just say probably you'll notice some of the questions just sound weird and they don't make any sense but there'll be one or two probably that something really happens and just give yourself some space for that something whatever it is to happen and we'll just take a few minutes and and see what happens and then you can give me your feedback okay so mm-hmm. if yeah just taking a moment to to settle and to come come away from the sense of being on the screen or just listening through your ears to the podcast, coming back to your sitting bones or whatever it is. So here I'm not using clean language. I'm just giving the usual kind of uh, what I call body-friendly language to, to help set things into the right kind of space. And coming to your breath. And taking a breath or two. And so the first question is, as you begin to notice your breathing, what kind of breathing is that breathing? Just sort of noticing if any response comes, an image or a feeling or whatever. And the second question is, noticing what you get if you get a response there, is there anything else about this breathing? And again, noticing if you get any kind of response, it can be maybe just a tiny little hint of something coming into awareness. And the third question, an whereabouts is... Breathing. Always good to ask that question in any kind of mind-body or Whereabouts is whatever it is you're aware of? And then, does this breathing have a size or a shape? Or a colour? Or a sound? And a couple more questions. And this breathing is like what? Just noticing if some kind of image or metaphor comes. This breathing is like what? And then, just to finish, checking with that good, simple question, is there anything else about breathing? And then coming back when you're ready, noticing whatever you notice. What what was that like to be on the receiving end?
0: Are you actually asking me? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never know. After doing a practice on the show, I always get like, like, oh, I'm hosting, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, it was pretty immediate, I would say, uh, in terms of the where it guided my attention, and it was interesting because I, I felt this like subtle sense of maybe not being able to trust what was immediately coming up. It felt like there was a lot of um, kind of like polar responses in a sense, you know, in terms of like, wow, my breathing's shallow. But the first thing that came to mind was that it's also like a bellows or like a chimney. So it was like both sides of a dimension. There is, it was like multidimensional.
1: Yeah. Shallow on the one side or bellows or a chimney on the other. Yeah. So I, I'm noticing this down because... I I can't stop myself doing that because I always get so fascinated by the images that start to come up. But then, then what happened? Was there anything else following from that?
0: You know, I think the, the final part of that um, was actually a sense of trust, which was interesting. The sense of you know, trust. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like a very, um. it's kind of like a journey at first in terms of like, Oh, I'm recognizing that my breathing is kind of in my upper chest mm. and you know, I, I recognize that that's something that I might always have when I'm recording a podcast. Maybe it's just the the container of recording, talking with someone new. There's kind of a, a more of a heightened kind of energy. But then by the end, you know, I recognize that as maybe a protective mechanism or something that I i am very familiar with and use as like a grounding or like a sense of shoring up or containing so it was kind of
1: yeah protective grounding, mm-hmm. yeah shoring up containing mm-hmm. notice how many words there are around that little kind of strategy what you're describing there is kind of a whole strategy around being present at the beginning of forecast with a new person and so on yeah but it, yeah. there's so much to it yeah mm-hmm. uh, and then somehow it came to trust
0: yeah yeah um I guess, trust in my capacity to hold the seat uh, regardless of who I'm talking to. And I think I maybe associate that with that sense of, uh, yeah, just um, keeping it together Mm -hmm. sort of by using the breath as kind of like up here. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what necessarily that means,
1: but. Well, one question would be, be how is it now in that sense of the shallow breathing, that side of the polarity? Is that any different? I'm sorry, could you the, say the, that, again? that You said the shallow breathing that you were aware of at the beginning. Yeah. Is that any different now? How is that? I'd say it's still there. There's still a thread of it. A thread of it? Yeah. 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 But a little different from before. Yeah, there's more space around it. More space around it, that's the thing. Because this thing in, you know, a lot of interventions, you're you're kind of trying to get a result or or shift something or um, make it go away. But in clean, we're not doing that at all. David Grove, the New Zealand psychotherapist who developed, invented and developed clean, always had this expression of, being an equal equal opportunity employer to every piece of information that comes into the space. So that shallow breathing is welcome. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely <laughs> as important as anything else. And, and then, as you said, when you paid attention to the shallow breathing, that whole kind of strategy about protection and containing and shoring up was all there. And... And if there's another kind of breathing, this bellows or the chimney or the trust, you know, how does trust affect the way we breathe? Then that's the other side of it. Uh, uh, on, sorry, I can't, can't stop myself being interested here. Uh, that thing you said about the awareness of the polarity is also so interesting. That, yes, there can be shallow breathing, and at the same time, there can be this sense or image of the bellows yeah. or chimney whatever yeah. and again in working in practice in clinical practice with a client that's what i'm always trying to do is to encourage whatever comes and to kind of hold apparently contradictory things in awareness at the same time and trust as you say trust that they can begin to communicate with each other uh and, and that's that's where the progress change the change will come from i hesitate to use the word healing <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah it's interesting for me uh, as somebody who i've read through this book and to prepare for this i read i'm halfway through it again <laughs> you know being very familiar with um this material and then experiencing it um just how immediate and how quick it really drops you into things. Yeah, Uh, that's something that actually just caught me off guard. I I don't know what exactly if I expected it to be different. But um, yeah, just interesting how much of my um, sensorial experience during a podcast or whatever, is so background, like it's there, but I've never really acknowledged it, Mm -hmm. you know, and like what that awareness does. Uh, so I guess from my experience, how is it that we can have such an immediate part of our experience kind of behind that foggy uh, lack of clarity? Like, how does that happen? Is it so immediate?
1: Well, that kind of brings me to something I've been exploring lately, which is um, the what I, I call the, the the mirror on the one hand and the heart on the other hand. These two ingredients of good therapeutic practice, I guess. Um, this metaphor of the mirror is often used as the, the the role that the practitioner plays is just simply a mirror to mirror back to the person, whatever is going on for them, whether it's through language and psychotherapy or whether it's through touch and body work. You know, are we doing stuff to them or are there times in a session where we're just mirroring back and the the person's whole system is taking that information in and hearing it which is exactly what happens with clean language you you hear yourself because the questions contain the words you just spoke as the practitioner i'm listening very carefully to the words you you're speaking and i'm putting them back into very simple very neutral questions so the effect of that is that I'm hearing as the as the client. I'm hearing my own words coming back to me, which in itself is kind of powerful, um, because you know, neurologically speaking, it's two different bits of the brain. The bit of the brain that speaks language and the bit of the brain that understands incoming language. Two different areas. So those are two areas of beginning to communicate with each other. Um, but the, that's the mirror aspect that, or the metaphor of the mirror as what we do in. Therapeutic practice. Then there's the heart, and this this is the, the fundamental question for me at the moment. Especially when I I'm invited to present to my to my clean language colleagues, who are more mainstream, not doing wacky stuff like bodywork, <laughs> but business coaches, and psychotherapists, and so on. Um, the but what we do in body work what we do when we're working with touch or with movement with breath you know all these mind body things um is very intimate it's a very body-to-body thing and um the you know the science is is catching up with that now we talk about the polyvagal theory we talk about the um social engagement systems stephen porges work and so on or um what is it the the um social engagement system, co-regulation, mm-hmm. interpersonal neurobiology, all of these terms which are whizzing around now to, to, uh, to acknowledge that this the body-mind is speaking to the body-mind, um, even while we're trying to, to be this mirror uh, and to really respect the client space. And that to me is a bit of a mystery and a wonderful kind of, um, polarity there are times maybe in a session where that heart presence really needs to come out or will naturally emerge Um, and there are times when you really need to respect the the boundaries of the client and and that's where the clean approach really helps it really helps to um, uh, to um, confirm the boundaries of a client and obviously with many clients boundaries are an issue they need to be um, confirmed.
0: Yeah. So you know, with this mirror approach, you know, it seems to me that it's, you know, we're reflecting back kind of a form of their own attention. And I, I don't want to misspeak because I think it was in your book. But this idea that attention itself, when you place it on something, has kind of a healing property to it. This is something I've thought about in terms of my, I'm, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. And one of the things my teacher said to me was that the mind untangles itself in space. And just this idea of this spacious quality of awareness or attention in its ability to help us know what we need to do. Mm. Could you maybe speak to that sense of knowing that like we, we somehow fundamentally know what we need? That's just a fascinating idea.
1: Mm, the, the mind untangles itself in space, This is mm-hmm. what your teacher said and the, and the body too i guess and, and and so there's a lot of things i could say here but the first one is i i really feel uncomfortable using the word body because that's the, the the lang the linguistic mind's attempt to separate itself from the body to give a name to a thing which is actually it is part of the brain is part of the body and so we need you know, language itself sabotages our attempts to include the whole somatic embodied sense of being uh, in what's going on. Uh, But that's it. Language is language. We don't really have much else to talk about. So I I use convoluted expressions like the the whole embodied self, whatever. Um, So that's that's a a first point. Um, And yes... This, the whole point of allowing the space, this clean space, which clean language can help us to, to build for the client, is that it's, it has a kind of alchemy to it, there's a chemistry to it, which is amazing. And, um, and it's, you, you know, it's not just a language thing, there's an energy to that kind of space. When you feel that that space has been offered to you then yes a lot of unraveling starts to happen <laughs> um, and but on the other side you know we talk a lot about the wisdom of the body and intelligence of the body somatic intelligence and so on and that's that's true we trust that as practitioners that's what we're hoping will work but of course human life is a complicated thing and they and And the body has all kinds of levels of intelligence to it. So, um, you know, a dog has super intelligence in many ways, but a dog can be really stupid in certain social situations, or it can run out into the road to try to chase a giant truck. Uh, Real stupidity can (laughs) happen when we're working with the body. Uh, Or it can get confused. Uh, Or in the case of... Impossible situations, traumatic situations, situations from early you know, childhood where one has been put in impossible double binds and so on, that lives in the tissues and, and in the brain. And that's when we do need some help. We can't just be in a clean space and everything will unravel and we'll jump, you know, jump out of the practitioner's room like a spring lamb. So that, yeah. that's where the skill comes. That's where the compassionate presence comes. And that's where the, the, this ability to really value the emptiness of the space that you're yeah. offering to the client. Yeah. While at the same time, for some clients, that emptiness can be quite uh, scary. Hmm. So you want to come in again a bit with the presence, out a bit. You know, that's the, the art of it. Does that answer? It does.
0: Yeah, okay. yeah it, it really does. And it kind of led me into this idea that I was thinking about with these two ways in which we kind of get disconnected. I, I've viewed it as a spectrum in terms of, I guess, a regular functioning nervous system in the way that language itself kind of occludes reality in a sense. And we view the world through this like verbal language when really sensorially we, um, we don't feel in language Mm. Uh, so that's one side of the spectrum of how we get kind of disconnected and then the other is what you were pointing to with trauma and Mm. like the protective mechanism of not really feeling the full sensations of our lives so just to dive in a little bit more into that process of how language um, kind of keeps us from really accessing the deep knowing of our body is there Mm. anything else you could maybe add to that and how I mean, even the most regular of folks are kind of blinded and we have all these blind spots because our thick concepts and mm. uh, just ways of viewing.
1: Sure. Well, I've done a little homework in preparation for this podcast. Um, one of my favorite uh, sources of inspiration is a com- almost completely unknown Swiss philosopher called Max Picard, who in 1949 wrote a book called the world of silence. And his point there is that from silence, genuine things emerge. Uh, The simplest things emerge from silence. And we need to really respect silence. And you know even in 1949 he was saying the world we live in is losing that silence, just like our world now is losing a lot of natural qualities losing the silence but coming back to the silence what emerges from silence is the most real thing it's a very zen kind of statement you know as well i don't know how much he was into eastern stuff but he's a western philosopher in a christian tradition actually Um, and that resonates with something from linguistics a concept from linguistics which the formal name of it is semantic primes. It's like what it's saying is there are certain words which cannot be defined in terms of other words. And these are the kind of words which I think emerge from silence. And obviously, red or green is not something that you can explain to an unsighted person. Um, It's just a word. But you have to, the point about these primary words is you have to experience them to know the meaning of them. Mm -hmm. And interestingly for us as as bodywork people, the word touch is one of them. Yes, you can just about define touch with other words, but like when two bodies are in such close proximity that there is no space between them, but it doesn't give you any sense of what being touched is like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so that thing about these primary words, these words that take us into silence, if you like, or take us away from language, as opposed, to, as Max Picard said, if you're talking about words which can, you know, which can be defined in other words, that just takes you into more and more words, and you end up in that kind of language you were talking about, which in a in a therapeutic context can be useful i mean there's whole one of my colleagues uh, works with narrative therapy you know where we're looking for narratives and changing narratives and so on It's fantastically helpful or analytical stuff psychoanalytical stuff listening to the language and the connections and the associations all of these things are you know well respected what we're doing with clean language is just kind of the opposite of that um deconstructing a little bit you could say the the complexity of the linguistic experience into simple words, which, from the point of view of uh, body work or mind-body practice, then takes us beyond words into all the different kinds of silence that there can be. There can be uncomfortable silence, there can be beautiful silence, there can be empty silence, um, but somatic experience the sort of things we're experiencing in the movement class or a bodywork session, how does that represent itself? Um, A bit like in the meditation we did at the beginning, there's breathing, and then there's images that come when you attend to the breathing. Images, memories, and so on. So that's um, um, one way to answer that question, to think about, yeah, how can we use language so that it takes us to these kind of primary words that that um, can only be understood through experience, which again, for me, is a very Zen kind of quality for a word. Yeah. And one more bit to that, speaking of the Zen part, because, you know, my background is in Shiatsu and Japanese um, and Chinese medicine philosophy. Um, I heard about this wonderful Japanese concept of Kototama. I don't know if you have you heard of that?
0: My Buddhist tradition was in Tibet. So, the Japanese. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um,
1: And there's a a wonderful Aikido teacher called William Gleason who's written about this, but it's really quite a secret thing, I think, for most Japanese. I I once attended a lecture by a, a Japanese buddhist priest here in london who was actually very quite a young guy who's doing interesting new music in order to get people back into the into the temple the buddhist temples because he mm. said in japan nowadays people only come to the temple for um, births and deaths you know mm. so he was trying to get younger people back into into buddhist uh practice in some way and doing very cool m- music around you know sort of um Contemplative music, I guess you could say. And he was talking about these things and sound. And uh, 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 in the QA, I put my hand up and said, Well, you're talking about sound and the qualities and the energetic qualities. But what about Kototama? And he just shut right up. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even <laughs> ask. He, he just sort of said, that we, That's too much to speak about. That's all he said. Wow. wow. <laughs> as, if, as if that wasn't the thing we talk about in front of Westerners. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But William Gleason's book, I highly recommend if you're interested in it. The reason I'm mentioning it, because I'm by no means uh, any expert in it, but it's an inspiration for me because the word means, Kototama means the spirit of the word. And for me, that means the energy of the word, the the resonance of this word. And when we're using clean language, that is what we're waiting for what we're listening for words that come that have a resonance that kind of leap across this gap between client and practitioner that resonate in you as the practitioner and you know wow that word i need to ask more about that word um, mm. um and you develop that as a as a skill i guess so when you said about the breathing that there was the shallow and there was the bellows and the chimney and the sense of trust that I needed to know more about those words because yeah. I knew they would take you deeper into your own experience. So this spirit of the word thing is um, really useful inspiration for me. And coming back from the East to the West, if you want to get a little bit more philosophical, the, um, actually, William Gleason is, is the Aikido teacher, and of course the founder of Aikido, um, Ushiba Sensei was really interested in Western philosophy as well. He and reading the Bible and so on, and he said when he came to the, the beginning of the of Saint John Gospel, that that famous bit where it says, "In the beginning was the Word," mm-hmm. and um, he said, "That's the spirit. That's exactly kotodama." And modern philosophers now, you know, there's this debate now in philosophy of about consciousness and matter, did did the Big Bang happen and matter arose and got more and more complex and finally created consciousness, or was it the other way around, was consciousness first uh, and that created the Big Bang and, and um, a universe that could be conscious of itself. Uh, Again, we're not philosophers. We don't have to go into that. But the, that's the um, the logos, as they say in, in Western uh, philosophy, the idea that the, the the consciousness, this word, the word consciousness, is fundamentally you know there throughout the universe, which is pretty much what we're talking about when we're talking about chi in Chinese medicine or whatever you say in Tibetan buddhism yeah (laughs) so yes it goes deep is what i'm saying there's this spirit of the word but in person to person client to therapist that's the the skill of it and the joy of it is just being really present when those words come out pop out that resonate and you know that's the word to ask about yeah yeah wow
0: it's amazing that you can have that kind of connection just by having your practice that's something that I, as kind of a fledgling body worker, I'm only a couple of years into it. That's kind of like what I'm aspiring to, is to be able to have that kind of connection to the grander scheme present between me and my clients. I mm. think just having that understanding, having that energy in your, your mind stream, that's really powerful. That's a really beautiful thing to be able to bring, whether it's cognizant or not, just to be able to interact with people from that perspective of like, their word is like a fundamental creative act that is synonymous with the Big Bang. Like, that's, um, that's pretty powerful. <laughs>
1: well, that's it. You, the, their word is a fundamental creative act. That, that's really it. The, um, and this is what I was going to sort of mention in relation to trauma, working with trauma, because once you're into some traumatic pattern... There's no way out of it backwards. You can't back out of trauma, uh, although that's what we want to do. We just want to get back to a normal. We just want to get back out of this stuff. There's only forward, and uh, and you need help usually uh, to get out of that. And um, the the creativity that what clean language invites in is that possibility of, of getting through the, the darkness, the, the sense of stuckness, or threat, or danger, or whatever, to seeing that somewhere in that landscape, however dark it looks, there's something there that is actually lighter, or more interesting, or there's movement, or there's growth, or whatever the metaphor is, there's something in there. And using the clean language mm-hmm. approach, This comes back to what you were saying about the mindfulness and the keeping the attention on something. That's what we do with clean questions. We keep the attention on whatever is actually happening and developing and presenting itself in the client's subjective experience. And that's sort of a really important mindful uh, ingredient, I guess, of getting the clean language to work, especially in the mind-body sense keeping the attention on by keeping on asking about what is happening now and then using the words that emerge and now is there anything else about that and so on rather than what, what can often happen in, in a trauma thing is that a person becomes aware of something which looks a bit like oh god we're getting too close to the trauma and you either you deliberately go away from it or these wonderful mechanisms of distraction develop as patterns and you just don't go there, so um, yeah. The creativity, if you if you stay with it, if you bring the attention to it, that what does happen is that, as well as that kind of unraveling, because there's space, things begin to unravel, and you can see them uh, as separate things, and you can see relationships between them, and creativity begins to emerge through this this immensely powerful and fundamental medium of metaphor images Mm -hmm. occur and and the images and the metaphors have multi-layers to them there's there's always much more to a metaphor than we think if we use it in relation to something that, that actually is important to us it might sound like a superficial metaphor like my back is killing me or he's a pain in the neck but if you actually ask is there anything else about that pain in the neck? Uh, oh, yeah, actually, then when you say it, uh, <laughs> I can feel, you know, there's a bit of a tight muscle there whenever I talk to him. My boss, uh, my <laughs> something like that. Um, that's the, the the power of it. And getting me into the creativity of metaphor is what takes you in the healing direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was something that um, was maybe one of the biggest takeaways from this, your book that I had. And I had actually read, um, I think it's pronounced George Lakoff, The Metaphors We Live By. I read that like a decade ago and I understood maybe a third of it. But the fact that you, I think you referenced it in this book and it really brought that back to my attention of just how misunderstood metaphors are and how fundamental to our ability to perceive reality and organize our experience so you know could we maybe dive in a little bit on what exactly a metaphor is and how that adds to our i guess it's called like embodied cognition
1: what exactly a metaphor is well for, for one thing if you go back to the meaning of the word metaphor the greek word it is carrying something across so metaphors take an image uh and carry it across to a different context. Um, so my boss is a pain in the neck. My boss is one context, a pain in the neck is the other context. Uh, they, they create a powerful sense of, of meaning by giving some strong felt, usually kind of felt sense to a particular context. So that's, that's one thing that metaphors do. Um, and as I said before, another thing they do is they compact, they 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 contain layers of information, and it's only with something like clean language um, that you begin to unpack those those layers. Um, I could give, we could do an example if you are if you're open to play a bit with this. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was just hearing in your introduction to the previous podcast you did. Uh, you use this wonderful metaphor uh, that your podcast is about keeping our butts in the saddle of our lives. (laughs) It's a beautifully embodied metaphor. (laughs) And um, so if I was just to ask you, if we take that metaphor and you're willing to play a, a moment with that, is there anything else about keeping our butts in the saddle of our lives? What's that like for you? I
0: guess it's the opposite of getting dragged by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> the of
1: getting dragged by a horse. Yeah. Um, and when it's the opposite of getting dragged by the horse, is there anything else about getting dragged by a horse? Uh, it just seems like a bad place to be. <laughs>
0: and I guess yeah. the inverse of that would be, you know, there's a sense of confidence in that you're handling
1: the situations of life. A sense of confidence, yeah and so if a sense of confidence is what keeping our butts in the side of our lives is all about is there anything else or where is that confidence whereabouts is confidence i'd say for me i, I feel it most in here yeah kind of in the throat and in like the chest area throat and chest and so one more question if you're up for it, it's just um what's that like there that confidence in the throat and chest is there anything else about that confidence in the throat and the chest yeah
0: i think there's like a sense of knowing who you are and being able to express that into the
1: world mm. without any inhibition knowing who you are and being able to express that into the world without any inhibition mm-hmm. how does it sound just hearing me repeating those words back it's pretty good mm. say it's a net positive <laughs> It, it makes a difference to hear the words coming back, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and just noticing the the sequence there, as we went through it, that I could have asked you all kinds of clean questions. I could have asked you, um, is there anything else about butts? Or what what's that saddle like? Or, you know. Yeah. Um, but the, you came up with the opposite. I guess it's the opposite of being dragged by the horse. Mm-hmm. And okay. And maybe there are times in your life where you felt that that was what was going on in life. I certainly have. Um, And it's a bad place to be. But so I gave you the opportunity to go further into the bad place. And what automatically happened was that you went back into the the positive, the confidence. What came out of that was confidence. Mm. And that's what usually happens when you give a person space to explore with mm-hmm. a, this clean approach. Yes, they can get into the bad stuff. And of, of course, people coming to see us in the therapeutic context, usually are focused on the bad stuff and they want to get rid of it. And what clean does is to, as I said, offers this equal opportunity of employment approach, say, so, okay, there's bad stuff. And we're not trying to get rid of it just at the moment. We're just trying to explore that, find more about it. and. Just as in the sort of the yin and the yang of it, the more you get into something, eventually it turns into its opposite. So, if it's okay for the person to be open to exploring the somatic experience of the bad stuff, usually given the space to unravel, the body mind begins to offer. Okay, there's some positives here. There's mm. that yeah, there's that light or that possibility, that hope that, yeah. And then you can begin to explore that in the same way and draw it out and make it richer and so on.
0: So this might be a little insular as a practitioner to practitioner, but have you ever come across a situation where you're interacting with somebody who has extensive trauma and you do a clean language session and they end up in a place that is darker worse <laughs> uh, and they don't reorient to the positive and then it's like all right well that's our time <laughs> like how do you how do you bring this to people who have a lot of fear and maybe a lot of really strong cycles that they don't seem to be um
1: moving through um yeah well in that respect there's nothing really different from how everybody works with trauma and there's so much Good material now about working with trauma, about making making it safe, giving the client the control to to stop the process, to pause whenever they need to. Um, the all those things I call in the in the course that I teach uh, for mind body therapists on how to use clean language. I call that body friendly language. In all the kinds of things we say which are not clean, which are quite directive or you know inviting or suggesting. Um, those kind of things are very important to create the space, a safe enough space not just for the client of course but for you as a practitioner because trauma is very infectious it jumps across the space it triggers stuff in ourselves as as practitioners so creating this co-regulated space um, is fundamental to getting the clean language to work and then as soon as a clean question takes someone too deeply into bad stuff that somatically their body's telling them I'm not going there you come out, you make sure that they have the the, the authority to to do that and I think one quality of clean language at least the way I use it that helps that is that it is very collaborative It's it actually changes the what, the, what most people come into therapy are expecting is that you know, that expert patient relationship, you know your stuff, I've got the problem, please remove the problem for me. Um, and it changes that completely. It, and that's what I say to people if they come to see me. Was, first thing is just to point out that one of the presuppositions of clean language is that I as the practitioner have absolutely no idea what's going on for you internally. And, and, you know, looking back at myself as, as a therapist and thinking over, you know, earlier on, I, I thought, of course I know what's going on for them. And of course I know what to suggest. And of course, <laughs> all these things. Yeah. Um, and that's quite liberating in itself for us as practitioners, just to realize, actually, we don't know. And, mm-hmm. and that relates to the, the good old Zen principle of not knowing. So that puts me as a practitioner in a space that I like and am familiar with and comfortable in and yeah. hopefully gives the client that sense that, that this is a collaborative process. They're in control as much as we are. It was, I think, Babette Rothschild was one of the first people working with trauma to emphasize that thing about give the client the, the authority to put the brakes on. Yeah, yeah. All of that stuff is is... Is there and very important and super important actually with clean language because as you said earlier, the clean questions take us so deep, so fast yeah, that it can be really surprising and that, yeah. that's why, I mean, one of the leaders in the field of clean of uh, Caitlin Walker um, who works a lot with institutions and organisations she has a rule um, when you're working with a group like people who are there as business colleagues not you know not therapeutic don't ask more than two or maximum three clean questions in a row to any one person in that group because boom suddenly they're going to be in a different universe yeah which they won't necessarily want to be in in front of their colleagues right but even one or two clean questions can can make such a difference and you know i guess if if there's a takeaway for people listening to this that would be it just just ask one clean question and that clean question is is there anything else about whatever they just said or maybe it it might not even be words it might be a movement or a gesture or a cough or a scratching of the head that david grove was brilliant at noticing the tiny ticks and things which um our communication, nonverbal communication, which often have much more to say if you bring the client's attention to them because they're usually unconscious. Um, that's, so the takeaway is <laughs> ask that question is there anything else about whatever they just said or did?
0: Yeah.
1: And don't imagine you know. There's another quote I love is from Stephen Batchelor. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. A Buddhist writer wrote a best-selling book called um, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. Uh, oh. his, his thing is about going back to the words of the actual person who was the Buddha and looking at, you know, what did he really say and what was he really trying to communicate in that context, in that time, to the people who were following him. Um, now this the quote is very simple. It's just... Um, To ask a question with complete sincerity, we need to suspend any idea of any expectation of what the answer might be. And that sounds simple, but boy, is it a challenge. (laughs) You ask a question, why do you ask a question in the first place? Because you want to know, or you have an idea of what the answer might be. (laughs) And clean questions are kind of different from that. We ask the questions simply to allow the person to hear what they just said and to keep their attention focused on that and take them one level deeper into what that is all about yeah yeah
0: you know earlier when we started this and you took me through a few uh, one of the things i said was that i didn't feel like i could trust what i was hearing and yeah you know a part of that is you know in Uh, my system of buddhism there's this idea of first thought best thought that's something that my teacher reiterates and i wonder is that the kind of listening that we're doing when we're partaking in this is whatever comes up bar none or is there a sense of like deliberation or like is there is that really it like can you kind of grapple with what it is that comes up or should you just kind
1: of repeat whatever is first there yeah good question um And that is absolutely natural, the the questioning of what pops up or the desire to sense what pops up. Um, Because what we're doing with clean language is asking questions about very simple categories of experience, embodied sensations, sizes, shapes, colors, sounds, location, whereabouts. Is that, is it in the body, is it outside the body? Um, these very simple categories: of what happens next, time and sequence, you know. And when you keep the the inquiry to these very simple um, levels of experience, then you're kind of summoning, invoking that body wisdom that we were talking about, because it is wisdom in this case, uh, it's body intelligence, which is very different from the the language brain. And in my book I have a whole chapter about the brilliant work of Ian McGilchrist. And probably some people listen to this know of his work, but just very simply to because it made so much sense to me when I read that. That he, he talks about what I call the verbal mind, you know, which operates for most people in the in the left hemisphere of the brain. And than what I would call the body mind or somatic mind, which actually operates much more flowingly and fluidly in the right hemisphere of the brain. And the amazing anatomical truth is that these two hemispheres of our brain are almost completely separate from each other, just like the kidneys of our lungs. But they do have some nerve fibers that, that uh, cross. So there are, they do communicate with each other, but they can also use those nerve fibers to, to inhibit each other, to stop something coming through, which is exactly what you were saying. So something comes in, this first image that you had of um, the, the shallow, was that? Uh, uh, or, or the bellows? Y- or yeah, what, yeah. Whatever comes, that, that this yeah. weird image comes. And the, the language mind, one of, one of its main characteristics is that it, doesn't want to recognize anything that it doesn't already have a label or a category for. Yeah. Um, and so when this stuff, weird stuff pops up from the, the more, uh, what you might call the unconscious or the embodied mind, it doesn't want to recognize that stuff because it doesn't really know where it's coming from or how to fit it into its categories. And so it's absolutely natural for, for that, that to happen, that, but first thought is the best thought yeah yeah be or welcome this first thought because it might just be a tiny little glimmer at first um and a person yeah. might have got very good at suppressing those little glimmers yeah for many reasons yeah
0: yeah yeah i know you know for me and as i was thinking hearing what you're saying it, it just like the shallow breathing didn't really fit in with my schema of how i viewed myself in this context
1: mm. so like mm.
0: that information the somatic immediacy of that was like well wait no that's not you know like i'm totally calm and relaxed and <laughs> yeah. it just like didn't line up so i could feel myself like have resistance towards it but then immediately yeah. opening to it and then exploring that more you know there was just an entire world underneath that that schema that really thin veil of what i thought Something was
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um and often people you'll ask them a clean question, the first thing they say is I don't know. I don't know. And then mm-hmm. you wait for a beat and then there's oh but wait a minute. <laughs>
0: there's yeah. Something shallow here."
1: Oh, yeah, so it comes, but the first thing is is no, I don't know. Because that's the linguistic mind um taking control, which is what it likes to do. Wow. Um, and of course, just to riff on that a moment, the, the parallel, you know, if you read Ian McGilchrist, he makes this point very clearly, but the parallels between how the verbal mind works, that thing of, if it, if I haven't got an existing label for it, then it's not true, it doesn't exist, is um, kind of how a lot of entrenched ways of being in the world work, including a sort of, a lot of scientific work, uh, you know, the the, the um, ongoing process of bringing the truths of what we do in, in somatic work to recognition by the established scientific world is so slow and so hard. And why is that? Because these two sides of the brain operate in such different ways. Yeah, and um, even when the evidence is quite clear with, I mean, for example, with a lot of energy psychology work and tapping and focusing and stuff, evidence is quite clear, but this good old left brain has a way of saying, mm, yeah, well, it does not bit, sorry, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep on keeping on with the way we do things around here. And yeah. It just takes a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know we're getting close to time. Uh can I ask you one more? It's like a theme, it's an idea, <clears throat> but I want to respect your time first and foremost. Do you have a little bit over the yeah, hour? Yeah, sure. Okay. You know, as we're both body workers and everything that we've been talking about has been kind of in the domain of communication and conversation, but how does this oh, yeah. How does this go into bodywork? How do you start practicing shiatsu? based on what you've learned from the clean conversation or why is this relevant to manual therapists
1: yes take us an hour to get to the question that i'm most interested in (laughs) Oh um but it's a beautiful question and i i've one way to answer is to talk about someone who is one of the biggest inspirations for me and she's a originally japanese um, classical pianist called Mitsuko Uchida. She came from Japan to Vienna, you know, the spiritual home of classical music, quite young because she was a bit of a prodigy to, to learn to play the piano in, in the classical Viennese manner. Now lives in London. But the way she plays, she's, she's one of the leading um, people, interpreters of Mozart and others, but The way she plays, it still has that Japanese quality in it that of an exquisite attention to how you produce a sound through touch and the way she plays a quiet note. I've never heard anyone do it the way she does it, but she's, she can, you know, she can also hammer away enormously powerfully. but the quote that originally made me aware of her, I was just reading something in, a, in the paper and said about her. She said um, that, that she doesn't impose her will on the music. She doesn't impose any interpretation on the music. She gets out of the way. And, it, and it, this reviewer was saying, it makes you feel like you're hearing the music the way Mozart was hearing it in his own head. And I thought, wow, that's how I'd like to be doing my kind of work with touch, my kind of shiatsu. And I, and I did work with a a Japanese master uh, called Akinobu Kishi for a few years, and his he had that sort of approach with touch. It was just absolutely exquisite. Um, so um, he wasn't interested in clean language at all, though. But, <laughs> <laughs> but over the years. I just have asked myself, well, what is it to bring that clean approach to the way we work with touch? Um, to really listening as closely and respectfully and as exquisitely as possible to what's going on here. And you can do that. Um, if you're a body worker listening to this, then here's one more takeaway. <laughs> when you're actually touching uh, whatever kind of body work you do, a muscle, fascia, Uh, acupuncture point a meridian whatever instead of sort of going into autopilot and thinking oh yes i'm trained to do something with this now just ask yourself what's that like is there anything else about that and be open and allow something to emerge from the touch rather than starting trying to do something Mm. and that i guess that's the the oscillation that's constantly going on for me any time I'm giving a treatment is when do, I, when do I need to actually get in there, play with it in a sort of non-doing way that <laughs> I'm doing something here because it wants me to do something. And when is it just about listening to it? Mm-hmm. And um, some of the most moving moments when I've been working with people, working with their trauma, are those just little moments when it seems like absolutely nothing is happening but you're just listening to this tiny little something that's saying i'm here and nobody knew and somebody's paying attention to me at last and boom and then what happens those that's the that's the the real stuff that's amazing i hope that answers the question
0: it does yeah. yeah um And if I can just ask one more on that, because it's Mm. just, I know that that's such a rich topic for you. But what is that experience like as a client to be able to receive a clean touch? I mean,
1: it's if I think of a colleague who we do exchange treatments with each other, uh, um, that's Alice Wheeldon, who who did study in depth with Kishi and wrote a book with him. Um, It is that feeling. wow, something, someone is really listening to me in a way that I didn't know how to listen to myself. It's wow. so very similar to what people feel when they get a clean question coming at them. Uh, that's one way I might describe it. Wow, I'm really, li- you know, that someone's bringing attention to my ankle or my liver or whatever um, yeah. Yeah. in a way that makes me bring attention to it. And not, not necessarily just conscious attention, but it makes the whole embodied energetic system bring that into awareness. Mm. And then that unraveling begins to happen that you mentioned. You know, where's the space? Is there? It's a spacious kind of touch, you could say. Yeah, amazing.
0: Mm. Oh. Well, uh, we are over <laughs> where okay. we thought. So I do want to respect uh, your time. I'm sure it's getting to be close to dinner for you. <laughs> so um, just to leave you an opportunity to just plug anything you might have going on, if people are really resonating with what you're saying, uh, how can they best stay in touch with you and continue learning this kind of material?
1: Oh, thanks. Yes. Well, my website is uh, mickpole.com. And once a year, I teach an online course for mind-body practitioners of any kind um, about how to use clean language. That starts in October, and it's a really enjoyable course to teach because we're we're applying all these principles to the process of learning as well as mm-hmm. as you know working with therapy. So, if you are interested, and and as you were saying, Brett, it's one thing to read a book, but you, you do need a bit of help to actually get the confidence to use it with clients. Um, then you are warmly invited to get in touch with me. And, um, and that's, yeah, that would be great.
0: Cool. Wonderful. Well, hopefully they can remember the website. I know that's pretty far out there Just your name, <laughs> but, uh, all right, uh, thank you so much, Nick, for joining me on the show. It uh, really was a pleasure. It was not in the direction I thought it would go, but it was even better. so okay yeah I appreciate uh,
1: it was a very clean conversation in that way. Okay uh, Thanks, right. Brett. that's yeah. great talking to you and yeah um, as I said, I, I really do appreciate what you're doing with this show. So thank you thank going. you
0: for saying that. I appreciate it. Okay, right. yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. All right, everybody. That was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end. That was Nick Pohl. You can find him at nickpohl.com. Like I was saying at the start, uh, Words That Touch is an incredible book. I really recommend it. Even if you're not into the bodywork work world there's something about its presentation of this theory and the science underneath it that is just so fascinating Uh, So I really, really recommend that. Uh, If you want to support this show, again, patreon.com slash 21stCenturyVitalism. Uh, Any small donation really does help me keep the lights on and the momentum moving. We have a lot of episodes coming up. I have some really incredible people for the rest of winter and spring. So keep your eyes peeled and your ears open. I will see you next
1: time.